We return now to our Sunday School series in the book of Zechariah, and today we're going to be in chapter 14, and we are going to be finishing the book, if you can believe it today. Uh, it's been a, a wild ride through Zechariah, all kinds of fun stuff we've looked at, and we are now on, I think, like part 27 or 28 or something. So we've spent almost 30 weeks in this book, and I think they were well spent because there's a lot of stuff packed into this book for us to unpack and try to understand. And uh, some passages have been easier than others. Of course, we're in chapter 14 today, which is a particularly difficult chapter. But what I want to do today is I want to, of course, understand chapter 14, try to get, get the gist of it. And then I also want to sort of uh, connect the rest of the book of Zechariah, all those other 13 chapters, with our final chapter here and show what Zechariah has been trying to argue this entire book. What is his prophecy? What is the Spirit of God trying to tell us through this book? All right, so let's look at Zechariah chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 21, which is the final verse of of Zechariah. So here we go, Zechariah 14, verse 12. And this shall be the plague which Yahweh will strike against all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Yahweh shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. All right, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together, and then we'll dig into this text. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true. We thank you that we can trust it, Lord. Uh, some parts of your word are more difficult than other parts, but Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage. You'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you may remember how I opened up last week. We were talking about uh, the difficulty of Zechariah 14, and you remember that Luther 
Martin Luther, that is, when he was teaching on Zechariah chapter 14, he says right away, he says, here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. And uh, there was a certain sense in which I was like this too when I was dealing with this chapter and trying to wrestle with it as I studied in, in preparation for this. It's a, it's a very difficult chapter. There's a lot of tough things to look at here. And in some sense, the first part of the chapter is more difficult than the second part. But nonetheless, it's still very tricky. Um, what I have done with verses 12 through 21, the text that I just read, is I've broken it down into a couple of sections. Uh, firstly, we have the judgment on the nations that come against Jerusalem, which is uh, verses 12 through 14. And then we have the nations going up to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, which is verses 15 through 19. And then we have everything being holy to the Lord in uh, the final two verses, that is 20 and 21. And here again, much like we saw last week, what I think we have going on here is we have a picture or we have a, a prophetic description of the church and of the new heavenly Jerusalem described in Revelation. Okay, I think what Zechariah wants to describe here is what we might call the already and the not yet. On the already side, for those of us who are Christians, on the already side, we have the Jerusalem being described here in Zechariah throughout the whole book. And that Jerusalem is, of course, the true church, right? God's people, the people who are holy to the Lord. So you've got the already, but then you've got the not yet aspect of this. And the not yet aspect is the new heavens and the new earth, that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven described in Revelation, right? So I think we've got two sort of major ideas here, the already and the not yet. And we'll get into that and, and why I think that's the case as we go along here. But again, we have a wonderful, wonderful description of what we as believers can look forward to in this holy city that is to come, okay? So let's take a look at the text here. Verse 12, we've got judgment on the nations. Here's what God says. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So you notice here that there's going to be armies coming against Jerusalem. We saw this last week, right? God's going to raise up the nations to come against Jerusalem. And when these nations come against Jerusalem, they're going to be struck with a plague. And we're told that that plague is that essentially their bodies are going to rot. Right? Their eyes are going to rot in their sockets. The tongues are going to rot in uh, their mouths and so on. And so basically what's being described here is that it, their sudden death is going to come upon the people who are attacking Jerusalem. Right? Because it, we're told that the rotting is going to happen while they're standing on their feet. Right? That is, this is unexpected. This is sudden. This is swift. This is de definitive. That death is going to come upon these people. Now remember, Going back to our, what we talked about last week, Jerusalem in Zechariah is the church. It's God's true covenant people, right? The, his elect. That's what the true Jerusalem is. And so when we're told that armies are going to come against Jerusalem, on the one hand, you could say, well, this is a, maybe the Romans coming against the earthly Jerusalem and destroying it. And there's maybe some truth to that. 
But I think primarily Zechariah has in view the true Jerusalem, that is the church. And so these armies are going to come against the church, that is the devil, the world, and our own flesh, right? The enemies of the church are going to come against the church and God is going to destroy those enemies one day. There's a certain sense in which God destroyed all of the enemies of his people when Jesus died on the cross. At that point, Satan was bound. So there's an already to God destroying our enemies, and then there's a not yet where our enemies are not completely demolished. They haven't completely been struck with this plague of death. They're still out in the world. Satan is still, even though he's bound, he's still wandering about, roaring like a lion, we're told. And uh, that's because he hasn't been completely destroyed yet. He hasn't been cast into that, that bottomless pit that we're told in Revelation. So, but there's a second part to this plague. It's not just that they're going to be hit with sudden death, but they're also, in verse 13, going to be hit with a great panic from Yahweh. And so that they're all going to be fighting each other. And this is just going back to the times in the Old Testament where we're told that God struck confusion among enemy armies of Israel, right? That was something God did very often. In fact, God would sometimes come, and and there's one situation um, in the history of Israel where God struck this massive army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, with confusion, and they all, like, killed each other. Or they all, like, ran away because they were scared. He strikes them with confusion. It's just an amazing divine deliverance for his people. And it just goes to show, God's the one who's doing the saving. The people aren't saving themselves. So they're going to be struck with confusion. And we're told here now, which I think is kind of interesting in verse 14, even Judah will fight against Jerusalem. Now, some translations, I think the ESV says, Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And uh, the Hebrew text here, you could translate it either way. Okay, you could translate it either way. In the context I think verse 14 should be taken as Judah will fight against Jerusalem. And the reason why I say that is because Jerusalem is the church. Jerusalem is the true believers of God. And and we just saw earlier, a few verses beforehand, when we were talking last week in chapter 14 here, uh, we just saw that this passage does have in view the coming of Jesus because that's the establishing of the church. And so what could be being described here is that even Judah, even the Jewish people, will fight against the true church. Even the Jewish people will fight against the true Jerusalem. The Jewish people will join the pagan Gentile nations in oppressing the Christian church that Zechariah has in view here. Now that's very possible. That's what I think. But I... I could be wrong. It could be Judah will fight at Jerusalem, as in Judah is another reference to the people who are living in Jerusalem, namely uh, the church. So it could have a reference to maybe Jewish Christians, could have a reference to just um, Christian people in general or church people in general. But I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. that. That's one of the difficulties here, <laughs> one of the many difficulties in this text. In any case, the main point here is that anyone who fights against Jerusalem, that is anyone who fights against God's covenant people, the church, is going to receive judgment from God. And that judgment is going to come in the form of destruction on them and swift, definitive death. But that's not the last thing that we are told about the nations. 
Because what's interesting is that in verse 16, we are told that the nations are going to do something else. It's not just that they're going to fight Jerusalem, but we're told that after this happens in verse 16, then everyone who survives from all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Now, there's a lot of really interesting things here, but notice this, that on the one hand, there are going to be Gentiles, that is, pagan nations that attack the church and try to destroy what God is doing. But then you've also got, on the other hand, pagans, Gentiles, who are actually going to come to Jerusalem to worship God. They're going to come into the church to worship. And so what we have in view here is a a massive prophetic uh, description of the ingrafting of Gentiles into the covenant people of God. That is, Gentiles are going to become Christians. And isn't this the whole message of the book of Acts? It's the gospel to the Gentiles, um, especially in the second half of Acts. And we're told that they're not only going to come and worship God in Jerusalem, but they're going to come specifically to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, if you've read the Bible much, especially the Old Testament, you should have heard of the Feast of Booths before. But my guess is, you know, there's a lot of different feasts in the Old Testament. So my guess is that many of us, including myself, kind of get them confused or we forget what they mean and so on. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the Feast of Booths because it's really important for this passage. Uh, The Feast of Booths was was, um, instituted by God in the book of Leviticus. So it's part of the Mosaic Law one of the many sort of feasts that Israel needs to to practice year after year, like the Passover or something like that. And the Feast of Booths took place as the last of the fall festivals. So it's taking place in the sort of mid to late fall, right after the harvest. I think it was right after the harvest of the um, olives and uh, grapes. So it's it's taking place after harvest, and what it was is that that Israelite families were supposed to construct small booths or tents and then live in those tents for about a week. And the purpose of this was it it was a special time to get away from your normal life, get away from your own house, and to be consciously aware of the fact that you need to thank God for his provision of the harvest. So it's a time to thank God because the harvest is over. Oh Lord, thank you. We've brought in food. We've brought in the olives. We've brought in the grapes. We've harvested our fields. We have our produce. Thank you for giving this to us. And so that's one aspect of the Feast of Booths, but there's actually another too. It wasn't just to thank God for the harvest. It was also a time to remember Israel's journey in the wilderness. That is their journey from bondage in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. It's to remember the Exodus. When God brought a people out of slavery by his grace and brought them into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the chosen land, their special gift by grace. And so this is why Zechariah is bringing the Feast of Booths into his prophecy. 
because what he's saying is that these Gentile nations are going to come into Jerusalem and they are going to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, why would the Gentiles do that? They weren't taken out of Egypt and brought to the land of Canaan. That was what the Jews did. That was what God did for the Hebrews, right? That's not what God did for the Gentiles. Or, or did he? Or does he? You see, it's so significant that Zechariah says that the Gentiles here, the nations, the pagan nations, are going to convert and come and join the people of God and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And the reason that these Gentiles, the reason these pagan nations are going to do this is because God has brought Gentiles out of bondage and into the Promised Land. But he hasn't done it literally like he did for Israel. Rather, Israel's being taken out of bondage and being brought into the land of God, the promised land, is a type of what God does spiritually for every single believer in Christ. Because isn't it true? I mean, we're, we're in a series in Ephesians, in sermons that Robert is preaching. Just think about the teaching that Paul is making. When we, before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sin. We were in bondage, spiritual bondage to our sin. And what God does is he doesn't just say, hey, you know, you, you know I'll give you salvation if you choose it. So I'm just going to sort of wait in heaven and sort of, here's an offer and you can take it or leave it. No, what God does is he goes in He comes and he grabs us and he pulls us out of our bondage using his sovereign grace. He pulls us out and he puts us in the spiritual promised land and he preserves us there. And so what happened to Israel in the Exodus is a type of what God does for everyone who comes to faith in Christ. He brings them out of bondage and into the freedom of the promised land. And that is exactly why the Gentiles are coming to Jerusalem here. Why they're coming to the church. And they're celebrating the Feast of Booths because they have been brought out of bondage and brought into the light of God's people. And then we get here to verses 20 and 21. And here in verses 20 and 21, we have sort of the result. What happens after God has destroyed the enemies of his people, and after he has brought in the Gentile nations into his church, into his Jerusalem. Here's what happens in verses 20 and 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Now that's significant because the only time anything is ever inscribed as being holy to the Lord is the priestly garments, particularly the, the, um, the hat that priests would wear. There was a gold plate that was engraved with the words, holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh. And that plate was attached to the priest's hat. So only the priest was holy under the Mosaic law. But now here we're being told, not only is the priest holy, but good grief, the bells on the horses are holy to Yahweh. There's nothing holy about bells, and there's nothing holy about horses. They're animals. 
And yet we're being told here that, that the horses in this new Jerusalem city are going to be holy to the Lord, like the high priest is holy to the Lord. What is going on here? Second half of verse 20. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And listen to this, verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. You see what's being described here. This is not just just your average earthly city. This is something very significant. God is saying that in this new city, in this wonderful new Jerusalem, everything will be holy to the Lord. This is mind-boggling to the Jews of Zechariah's day. Because for them, only a few very particular things and only a few very particular places were holy to Yahweh. Only the holy of holies in the temple is holy to Yahweh. That's the only holiest place. And then you have the holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple that's a little bit less holy, but still pretty holy. And then everything else is basically common. But here we're told that even the trinkets hanging from the horses are holy. Everything in this city is holy. This is a holy city. And the very last sentence in Zechariah, the very last description we get of this most holy city is in the very end of verse 21. Look at it with me. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, that word for traitor that you see in, say, the ESV is actually the word Canaanite in the Hebrew. And that's reflected in some of the other English translations. And so I like that translation better. I think traitor is a little too um, idiomatic. I think we should take it more literally as Canaanite because it fits the context better. And in the context, remember, we're being told the Gentile nations are coming into Jerusalem. And then we're told here that there will be no Canaanite in the house of the Lord on that day. Now that's not saying there won't be any Gentiles because we've already had Gentiles coming in. Rather, what we have here is that there will be no true Canaanite. That is, no true practicing pagan. That is, there will be no unbeliever in this holy city. Why? Because all unbelievers, all of those who are against God and against that spiritual Jerusalem, everyone against the church, all of our enemies, all of God's enemies, they will all have been destroyed. And so there will be no Canaanites in this city. It will be comprised perfectly of all Jews and Gentiles who are of God's covenant people. All believers will be in this city and there will be no unbelievers. Are you starting to figure out that this prophecy that Zechariah is giving us here extends farther than literal, physical Jerusalem, that city in Israel? 
It even extends farther than this already reality we experience called the church. Rather, this prophecy is looking even further than that. It is looking to that final new Jerusalem, that holy city in the end of Revelation, that place that we as believers in Christ Jesus will always be forever and ever when we spend eternity with our God. That city, folks, that you and I are going to as believers, that city is a holy city. It is the city of God. This is the message of the book of Zechariah. The message of this book, it's taken us 30 weeks to get here, but let me tell you, the message of this book is to tell us about the holy city, which is to come. Right at the beginning of the book of Zechariah in chapter 1, we have a call to repentance. As Zechariah calls the people of Israel away from their sin to be faithful to God. And then we have eight night visions where Zechariah tells about judgment that's going to come on the nations who are against God and how judgment is going to come even on the people of Israel if they're not faithful. We've got all kinds of descriptions of the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to bring peace and shalom to God's people. We have the first prophetic oracle where Zechariah explains the judgment that is coming on unbelievers and on the disobedient. And then we have the second prophetic oracle, which focuses on blessing that comes to God's people, and that blessing being an everlasting blessing in this holy city. The people of Zechariah's day thought that what God wanted for them was that they would just rebuild the earthly city. If we could just rebuild the earthly city, they said. If we could just rebuild the temple. If we could just get the walls of Jerusalem up. Man, then then we will really be blessed. Then everything will be perfect. But the message of Zechariah is that that's right, but it's wrong. Yes, you should seek to worship Yahweh the way that he wants you to. But the point of Zechariah is that you are not going to find fulfillment in rebuilding the earthly Jerusalem. That is not the point. No, it all, everything that happened to Israel, the exodus, the monarchy, the Davidic reign, the reign of King Solomon and all of the riches and everything that he accumulated, the temple and all of its vessels, all of the instruments in it, the basin, the altar, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, all of those things were good, but they're not an end in themselves. Rather, all of those things point forward to something greater. That Jerusalem, that city of God in Israel, in the Middle East, was a good city, it was important, but it is not an end in itself. It points to something greater. It points to what Jesus called the kingdom of God. In the already sense, the kingdom of God is the church. Our enemies have been crushed. They have been destroyed. 
by the work of Christ on the cross already. But in the not yet aspect, we await the final destruction and judgment of our enemies, and we await the final transfer from this world of darkness into that new Jerusalem, that holy city, that perfect, final, fulfilled reality of the kingdom of God. And it is on that day, ladies and gentlemen, when we will join all of God's elect from all of the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and we will go up, as verse 16 says, year after year to worship the king of this kingdom, Yahweh of hosts. That is what awaits us. That is what we look forward to. Oh, praise God for this. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for the message of this book, Lord. Lord, we thank you that through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he has earned for us the right to become your children so that we can be a part and so we can enter into your kingdom, that we can come to this new Jerusalem, that we can come to this holy city. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for this gift, Lord. We thank you for salvation. and Most of all, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We did not deserve this. We don't deserve this. We will never deserve this in and of ourselves. Lord, we pray that, that you would constantly and, and repeatedly remind us of heaven. Remind us of this wonderful destiny that we have as your people. Lord, work this in us more deeply and more richly, we pray, in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.